Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. Good morning, all you beautiful souls. Welcome to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Today is, once again, proof that anybody can get along, because we have on the show a royal with a Patricia. And if the two of us can get along all right, hey, there's hope for everybody. How are you, brother? I'm doing very well, Mark. Thanks. How are you? Good, good, good. You're not one of those people that would call us dirty Patricias, are you? Um, or Pickleys? Oh, I hate that, that one. Pick Pickley? That's terrible. <laughs> you know, I, I always, uh, I always take uh, when I'm when I'm dealing with Patricias. You know, I'll always sign off by saying pro Patricia. I feel like it's a nice bridge between the two regiments, and uh, some of the old royals don't always uh, appreciate it as much as the Patricias do, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's not even a thing because it's pro patria, right. but so yeah. so you're just kind of bridging it there by saying pro patricia. See, yeah, and it, you guys don't have an official motto, so I'm really no. trying to I'm really trying to put that out there, and hopefully the rest of the patricias will pick that up. Just pick it up. Well, I got one. Uh, only the video people will see it, but when you here we go, VP <laughs> with with my fingers, but. Uh, uh, the Royals got all the cool stuff, though. You got all the cool uh, sayings, never pass a fault, and uh, pro patria, and I don't even know what the hell VRI stands for. And you got oh, the coo- I, can, I can tell you if you want. Yeah, what does VRI stand for? It's right on your hat badge. So, so it stands for Victoria, Regina, Imperatrix, which is Victoria, Queen, and Empress, because she was the Empress of India. And the RCR are, have the distinct honor of being the only regiment in the Commonwealth that was allowed to keep her cipher after she passed. See, that's just cool shit. <laughs> and you got the Death Star, you know. Uh, yeah. you, you, if you run out of uh, bullets and you can't find your bayonet, you just throw your hat badge at them. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> stick it right between the eyes, you're good. You know, if you throw our hat badge, it doesn't. it's not going to fly nearly as well. Yeah, a little bit of blunt force trauma, but yeah, you're probably not going to get the penetration that we will. No, you you, you got to get them right in the eye with our hat badge. With, <laughs> with, with your hat badge, you can get them anywhere, really. And yep. you can also use your hat badge. I got to pick one up and stick it in my wallet, you know, and uh, people think I'm a cop. <laughs> think yeah, I'm a sheriff. I, I, haven't, I haven't tried that one yet, but uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Just toss it in my wallet. Well, the points of the star on uh, the RSR cap badge, that means something, too. T- tell us what uh, that means. Pop, you know what? Pop, you, pop quiz. You've actually got me stumped on that one. I'd have to go back to my catechism. A Patricia <laughs> telling a royal about his own hat badge. Now, this is awesome. How many points are on your star? Eight. Right. It's the points of the compass. Oh, okay. There, <laughs> there you go. 
<laughs> I'm gonna. I, I do have the catechism uh, right here. I'll I'll have to search through it for that uh, after we're done. I'll have to verify that. <laughs> there you go. Well, brother, um, like so many, when they get out, uh, you have decided to do something for others. You've decided to serve the veteran community. And uh, you've done so with the Dispatches Adventure Ride. And you, you jumped on that within weeks of getting out after a nice, long, fat career. <laughs> a very, very interesting one, which we'll uh, undoubtedly get into. But for the Dispatches Ride, first of all, what is it? And how did you decide to do that so, so quickly after getting out? Um, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll answer the second part of your question first. I decided to do it so quickly after I got out because I was absolutely desperate. Mm. Um, you know, the second I released, I mean, I released under, I would say under duress. I, I was in a bad place. Uh, I really had to release. I couldn't stay in the forces any longer, but I was not in good shape uh, emotionally or mentally. So I knew I had to do something positive. Yeah. And that's what I gravitated towards as, as a positive. Uh, Michael, is it okay endeavor? if we, if we dig down a little bit there and if, if, oh, yeah. I, if I dig too deep, brother, just, uh, just say pass. Okay. Sure so, thing. so you knew that you had to get out. I knew I had to get out too, but that was 95. So nobody had a, any freaking clue <laughs> what, what the hell was going on. But I, there was just something in me that knew. So for you, what did that look like? Um, well, really what started it was a posting. Uh, I was, uh, at this time I was an imagery technician and I was being posted to Shiloh and I had a pretty severe reaction to that news. Uh, one, because the plan had been for me to stay in board in Ontario and then go instruct at the, uh, at imagery training at the school. And, you know, when I got the news, I was being posted to Shiloh. I had this very severe reaction to that. And I really had to examine why I was having this reaction. Uh, I've been somebody, you know, I've never been shy about postings. It was always exciting to go on postings, to go somewhere new. And this position in Shiloh was actually, um, it was actually a dream job. I'd be out on an army base. I'd be working with army guys doing army stuff. Uh, I would have been, as an imagery technician, a master corporal, basically working for myself, I would have had my own shop there and I would have reported, I think to a public affairs officer in Edmonton. So working autonomously, uh, you know, working with army guys, really it was a dream job. And I had this very severe reaction to being posted. And that was what really clued me into the fact that I was, I was just at the end of my career. I couldn't tolerate being posted anymore. I couldn't tolerate uh, the geographic instability. Um, and that was, yeah. And now, I had, at that point, been struggling with PTSD for 17 years. I was diagnosed in 2001. So, you know, it wasn't completely out of the blue. Not a lot of diagnoses in 2001. So you were one of the first. Uh, Yeah, it was... uh, That must have been kind of uh, a rough go because in in 01, there would have been stigma up the wazoo. (laughs) One-way ticket out. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I made a career of minimizing it. Um, and of course, so through minimizing it, denying it to myself. Um, so I, I spent that 17 years in denial and it was really when that posting came up that I realized how, or came to my awareness, how affected I really was. And the fact that I just couldn't tolerate being part of it anymore. So that's, that's kind of, so yeah. And then that, again, that, that leads us to that desperation, which is what 
really kind of got me started um, pretty quickly after I released from the forces doing something positive. So what was going on there was being in a state of emotional overwhelm and it presents itself in so many different ways. I, right now I see everywhere I look, I see trauma and, and the results of it, especially in our community. And it sometimes it uh, presents itself as manic. So the people that are talking a mile a minute, you can't get a word in edgewise, which is how I used to be at one point. Um, and there's the ones that are quiet and reserved and they don't leave the house, you know, and there's, there's different ways that it presents. How was it presenting for you? Like when you were desperate, like what was going on that you knew that you, you needed help, you needed to change, you needed something. What was going on for you that, um, that caused that desperation? Well, I think, um, I, I transferred to, or I trade transferred to be an imagery technician in 2012. Uh, so up until that point I'd been, I'd been a Royal and really that transition to, uh, the imagery technician trade failed. I didn't fit in. Uh, you know, I was trying to make everybody else, uh, you know, a Royal (laughs) and not everybody wants to be a Royal. Never pass a fault. And and, and, so so the bar was too high. Well, that's it. You know, what really came, what I didn't realize was uh, for those many years that I was affected by PTSD, all of my coping mechanisms had been developed within that very specific infantry RCR culture. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that culture was gone, all those coping mechanisms started to fail because I didn't fit in to that new culture, you know, with, with the approach that I had to things. And of course, you know, rather than recognizing that uh, you know, me, my perceptions and the expectations I was projecting on everybody else were the problem. I kept just trying to swim upstream. Uh, you know, I wanted, you know, I left the infantry because I wanted new challenges, but then I wanted to make the place I was in just like the infantry. What color uniform and, were you wearing as a photo tech? Uh, so initially blue, uh, it was still an okay. air force trade. When so I there's half, there's half the problem right there because, <laughs> yeah. be, because, uh, cause you're not going from army to army. You know, from, from yeah. high speed low drag to something, but it's still army, right? Uh, you went all the way to blue, and yeah. the the clash there, the culture clash, because you go from shit wired tight to meh. <laughs> you get there when you get there, and and things are pretty relaxed. So that in itself, going to a blue uniform would have been really tough. So you add to that the fact that when I left the RCR, I was an instructor at the Battle School in Meaford. So I went from an, uh, an infantry instructor to a, uh, you know, a SIFSATE photography student. And um, my head exploded on a daily basis. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, so I really spent, you know, that six years as an imagery technician, um, <clears throat> really trying to jam the square peg into the round hole, um, you know, instead of shaving the peg down. Uh, and I, I got to be very frustrated. I also suffered from a pretty healthy case of white knight syndrome. Um, mm. so I was going to save the world, you know, never pass a fault, leave things better than you found them. And really at the, in that last year of service, the way my struggles really manifested was, uh, you know, had a lot to do with operation honor. It had a lot to do with, you know, sexual misconduct, abuse of authority. And, you know, I was really kind of put taking leadership to task over these things, uh, which is not in and of itself a bad thing. Um, but being in that state where I'm, I'm mentally struggling, I lost all objectivity. 
I just became the angry guy who would occasionally, you know, kind of bust through the sergeant major's door and say, look, we got a problem. What are we doing about it right now? Um, and again, these very unrealistic expectations that the chain of command would drop everything they're doing to address these, you know, very large, complex issues. And when they weren't willing to do that, I'd just kind of write them off as part of the problem. I got to be very, I would say, combative and belligerent, um, you know, because, again, being frustrated, I'm not able to fit in with, you know, my new family the way I did with my old family. The uh, And just, just getting to the point where, I've been fighting this off for years and years and years, and I'm just tired. Um, so what do we do when we get tired as, you know, old infantiers? Did you have when a special you, moment? Sorry to, to cut you yeah, short. Yeah, no, no but, worries. Uh, did you have a, a particular moment? And I ask this because a lot of people have the moment where you go, oh, shit, this isn't the rest of the world. It's me. Did you have that moment? Uh, you know what? I think I came to that moment after I left. I had to really kind of remove myself from uh, from that culture, from that environment before I could really kind of start to look back and, yeah, you know, come to the realization that, yeah, I was I was part of I was the problem, um, not, not the entirety of the problem. But, you know, um, certainly, you know, I, I always frame it, you know, my buddy Jay always said, if, you know, everybody you meet every day is an asshole. It means you're an asshole. You're the common denominator. (laughs) And I really had to look back and reflect um, and say, you know what? The things I was upset about, uh, I was more than justified in being upset about them. But I was so over the top angry. I I lost all objectivity. And that was the, you know, that was the cue that, yeah, I was the problem through all that. Have you explored and have you figured out why that overflow happens? I mean, I can, I can explain it, but I'm curious to see if you've yeah. got there yet. Um, you mean the overflow in terms of... Like, um, when, why you're more upset than those around you? I think there's a lot of uh, reasons to that. You know, one is that white knight syndrome and deflecting, you know, I'm going to focus on all these external problems so I don't have to look inward. And that mm, becomes yeah. just this regular state of being. So I'm always looking for the next cause, the next fight to have. Um, and if I'm out saving the world, I'm too busy to worry about myself. Yeah. Um, I think the other is, you know, I became injured. I was 24 years old. So, you know, from the time I was 18, I joined the infantry. So all those formative adult years were spent in that very specific culture, uh, as well as that I became injured during that time. So again, how my coping mechanisms developed within those formative adult years would have been very much immersed within that specific culture. So I had a lot of these patterns, behaviors, and, um, you know, expectations and, and, you know, cultural norms that didn't translate once I left that environment. And I was really, you know, for years, I clung to those values. That's what kept me afloat, you know, amidst all this chaos. And so when those values were challenged, it felt like an attack. So then, you know, you respond in kind, you kind of go on the offensive and, and again, just becoming angry and frustrated and losing objectivity. I would, I would say that's probably how I came to, to that overflow. You're incredibly introspective, Michael. And, uh, did you figure out a lot of this while you're on the motorcycle, putting on all those miles? (laughs) Um, yeah, the, the, being on the bike, being inside the helmet, uh, gives you a lot of time for reflection. Uh, I would say honestly, being diagnosed as young as I was. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was, he said 2001, there weren't a lot of diagnoses floating around. No. Um, 
And, and my worry immediately was that I was going to lose my job. Uh, as soon as I heard the, you know, the word, uh, the, the term PTSD, I thought, well, that's my career is over. Um, so I really started to manage it. You know, I started to stay on top of it very quickly. And I think I developed that, you know, that reflectiveness and that introspection kind of through that process of, of constantly monitoring it. Um, I didn't always do that in the most healthy way, but I, I think that's a tool that came from that. So a lot of these things were kind of floating around before. Once I removed myself from the environment and gave myself uh, the headspace to reflect, I think the pieces just started coming together a lot faster. Everything that you're saying is bang on, and there, there's so much more that I, I wonder if um, you're even aware of. Like, the, the, you're so fortunate that you got on it early. The earlier you get on it, the better it is every time. When it, uh, I wasn't diagnosed for 23 years. That's a long time to have a train wreck. Long time. But the uh, the state of emotional overwhelm, it's for a few different reasons. But there's only so much room in the trauma cup. And you've probably heard the trauma cup or the trauma bucket. Um, it's a container. So again, for those that have the video, got 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 the Tango Romeo mug here. A healthy person is about a third full, just because of life. Life happens, you know, you, you have loss around you, you lose your grandparents, dog dies, stuff like that. Um, maybe you had a car accident, normal life stuff. So the trauma cup is about a third full. So you can shake it and, and bounce and you can hit a, a, a crazy gravel road and you're not going to spill because it's, it's only a third. And the spill is the over, emotional overwhelm, getting mad at people, not being able to keep your lid on, not being able to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you know, what do you know you should? And um, if you're only a third full, that's, that's normal people. That's normal society. Um, but there's something called the ACEs score. And the ACEs score is childhood trauma score. Well, people like you and me and cops and, and everybody else, there's something about our community where we chose these trades somehow is related to a higher level than normal of childhood trauma. So we're joining, the, you know, this, this weird world that we joined and we're already half or better. Let's say it's, it's five eights full. You know, everybody else is down here, and we're, and we're up here when, um, uh, like, twice as much, maybe two-thirds. When we joined, we were like that. And then just the training alone is enough to fill up the cup. Then you throw in a combat tour on that, or any kind of a tour, and you see the things that we see, and you do the things that we do, um, which is really not natural. <laughs> you know, it's like we're on the wrong planet or something. We're not supposed to be doing this stuff. <laughs> You know, uh, combat is just not a natural thing, especially on a tour where it's um, you're in that environment for a prolonged period of time. Our brains are more set for the saber-toothed saber tiger once in a while. You know, that's not a daily occurrence. It's like eh, every couple of years you see one of these tigers, you got to <laughs> stick a spear at them, you know. But it's not every damn day. Um, so when our cup is, is already full, which it fills up really easy after a tour uh, or in the middle of the tour, in my case, that spillover is the meal is, is you losing your shit. You know, every time you get mad or you freak out or you're, you're yelling or raving or you're just mad and piping, even if you keep your mouth shut, but everybody knows you're piping mad and you just can't keep your lid on. Um, and over really 
nothing. But it's not nothing. Because if you if your cup was only a third full, you know, you wouldn't even notice it because there's no overflow. But when you're already full, you're boiling over. With, with it only takes a little pebble <laughs> to cause the, the the spill over. So it's, that's why people think we're overreacting. We're not overreacting. We're acting perfectly fine. It's just that we have no more room in the cup. And and, and so the the trip the the whole trick with with healing is getting that cup to to drain a little bit. So that's the emotional overwhelm, and and, and what's going on with that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've certainly experienced that, you know, uh, throughout my entire career, I think at the, uh, yeah, at, at the end of it, you're just, you know, there's no room to stuff anymore in it. Like it's just, um, or you're just so fatigued from, you know, that balancing act, like you, you know, to, to use the analogy of the cup, you're, you're literally walking around trying not to spill that, uh, you know, not to spill that drop. And that's, that's an exhausting, oh. uh, process to try and to, to constantly be, be balancing that. So, yeah. And, and that's definitely one thing I've noticed, you know, and uh, I noticed that with relationships and looking back saying, you know, it was hard to maintain relationships. It was hard to even have a pet because people Mm. and, and animals have needs. And the moment they have a need that uh, even jostles that very delicate balance that you're always trying to maintain, it's, you know, it's enough to send you kind of over the edge or, yeah, just to kind of set you spinning. And that was something I definitely uh, noticed, especially as time went on. I was less and less able to have anything in my life that would that would deviate from that routine or cause disruption because I just couldn't handle it. My uh, first marriage. <laughs> Didn't know I had PTSD. You know, I thought everybody else was the asshole still. And um, our poor little dog. I would yell at this dog, you know. Um, it had a tough go because of me. And, uh, God, what a shitty feeling once you realize that it's that you're the problem, you know, yeah. and, and the damage that you've done. It's um, So a lot of people don't, Terry, or Michael. You know, it's um, a, a lot of people don't. And they will go their whole life thinking everybody else is the problem. Why can't they just meet my standard? Why can't they just do it right? You know, it's just, it's this weird narcissistic thing. And I'm sure you've seen it too, where the asshole um, never yeah. admits that they're the asshole. Well, you know what? I mean, yeah, that was me for, <laughs> for, for quite a while. <laughs> me so too. I can definitely, I can definitely recognize that. And you know, it's funny. I was, uh, I was working as a guide here on the, on the river, actually close to home. And you know, I had a family come in off the river and this one gentleman goes to get out of his, uh, I think he was in the kayak and he slips in, in the, you know, the mud and the bank and the river. Cause he was, he wasn't really getting out very well. You know, he wasn't using very good technique. And the second he fell, he rounds on his son and says, you know, it's your fault. You were too close to me. You got me off balance. And I remember watching that and feeling just this immense sense of shame because I can recall doing something similar and speaking to my son in the same way, you know, I, I cut my hand and it was his fault. Well, it wasn't his fault. It was mine. I was, you know, not paying attention to what I was doing, but you lash out to that person that's just closest to you. And, um, certainly I've, I, I see a lot of myself reflected even in, you know, and this, these were civilians. So I saw myself reflected in that, you know, that interaction that I was watching and it made me realize, okay, like I've done that. And so I I think that's where, you know, 
coming to that realization that I was that part of that problem, it, it's, it's been a process and definitely again, stepping back from that environment that causes, um, causes you to stick with those reinforced behaviors that causes you to stick with those old perceptions. It's hard to step back and see those things big picture. As soon as I removed myself from that culture and I was now a little off balance because I'm around civilians all the time, but I started to notice those parallels and I started to recognize some of my own behaviors uh, in other people. You know, that was a huge part of um, bringing that self-awareness to it was watching other people and relating it to, yeah, I've done that before. Um, and, and it's kind of cringeworthy what I just saw. And, you know, oh, yeah. But, I, um, yeah. I, I remember taking my kids rock climbing and this is before I, I was uh, diagnosed and I really understood everything, but taking them rock climbing and now it's a life or death experience, right? And, like everything yeah. really is mission critical. And, uh, and that's where I would really shit the bed with the kids is, you know, something like a canoe trip or things where it actually did matter, the, the safety parameters and watching the other dad with his kids and his kids were not behaving right and, uh, whatnot, but he was totally calm and, and easy going. And I, I remember just staring at him, like I was looking at Bigfoot in a, in a dress, you know, just like, how do you do that? Like how your kids are being little assholes and we're, we're rock climbing. Like this is actually dangerous and you're not flipping out. How do you do that? I, it was like um, a three headed alien. And, uh, but I thought, God, why can't I do that? I want to do, I want to be that guy. <laughs> you know, I want to be Bigfoot in a dress because I'm sure as hell I'm not. Um, have you had those, those same moments? Um, I, yes and no. I, I've certainly seen other parents and, and uh, you know, thought, you know, I wish I could have that, um, that rapport. I think uh, I've more viewed it uh, reflectively since, you know. Mm. I really wish I could have been more of a mentor, more of a teacher to my kids uh, instead of this very domineering, you know, angry presence that I was because it was, you know, I'm going to give you direction, you know, with – with the best of intentions, I want you to be safe. Um, but with this, you know, it, it, I, I feel like I squashed a lot of spirit uh, just because just being overbearing, uh, overly critical, you know, always doom and gloom. Um, well, what rank yeah, were you in, in as a battle school instructor? I was a master corporal. Okay. So, so I mean, my job was to be the bulldog as well. So, yeah. and I, and I fit into that, um, I fit into that very well because I was always kind of angry and intense. So it was, you know, it wasn't a leap to, uh, to kind of be in character when it was time to teach. Well, I mean, it's not just the training. Um, it's the training, it's the environment, uh, as a Jack, you're a two IC of a section. Um, sorry, Americans, uh, Jack is a master <laughs> corporal. Um, we'd call it a Jack cause it's a, the master of jacking somebody up. And, uh, uh, it's the first rank where you get to jack somebody up. You don't get to do that as a corporal so much, but, um, the training and the culture between our two regiments as well. I mean, any infantry unit is high speed, low drag mission critical. Um, but the Royals, you're even more so, I mean, you paint your rocks for God's sakes, you know, <laughs> Uh, we never did that. I never saw a painted rock, but, um, uh, as high as 
wired tight as the Patricias are, the Royals are wrapped a little bit tighter. Just a little bit tighter, you know. More. It's another quarter turn. Yeah, it's another quarter turn for sure. Uh, the the boots are a little bit like we had nice boots, but they're but the Royals got even shinier boots. It's amazing. Don't know how the hell you do that. Um, paint the rocks, never pass a fault. Do Do you think that the ability to transition into civilian life would be even tougher for a Royal than it is for a Patricia because of that? Um. I'm not entirely sure that it would be, mm. um, you know, and I, and we saw a big shift in that when Afghanistan came around, when there was a little bit less focus on painting the rocks and blousing the boots. Uh, once we got to real operational uh, tasks, you know, or, and that those high level tasks, but um, you know, I definitely have reflected on that many times in terms of my transition to being an imagery technician. Uh, Cause at one point I was going to go back to the regiment. I was, you know, this isn't for me. I'm going to go back to the infantry. Um, I didn't. I stuck it out. I'm glad I did because I, I think if I had gone from that point of being injured and uh, being in the regiment still to being a civilian, that would have been such a huge drop. That would have been such a huge difference that I probably, I don't know if I would have made it through that fall. And that would have been incredibly difficult. So I was very lucky to have a failed transition into being an imagery technician uh, because I, it got me some lessons learned. It gave me a wake up call. You know, when I, when I rejoined the civilian world, it was like, okay, me holding on to these things didn't work last time. It's, it's not going to work this time. So um, I can definitely see, I, I think I probably would have had the same uh, struggles if I had been a Patricia and gone from being in the infantry that long injured for that long and becoming a civilian. Um, I really needed that that uh, that middle transition in order to kind of carry me through it. That makes sense. I, I, I've often wondered, though, because I've seen many, many uh, Patricias go Air Force, and that shock, I think it could be actually worse than going straight to civilian, and this is why. When you go straight to civilian life, the expectations, I mean, you're aware that, okay, I am no longer in the military, therefore my expectations, um, I have to get rid of those because this is the civilian world. Um, whereas when you go from green to blue, you're, it's still the military. And uh, many a Patricia um, tells me about going to an Air Force base and um, wanting to run around choking everybody because uh, they'd see a private lipping off a sergeant and and heads start to explode. Like, what are you doing? Talking to that sergeant like that. And um, uh, because the expectations are still, hey, this is the military. And just letting go of that. Everybody I know, actually, that rebustered to Air, Air Force trade had that same uh, shock to the system when when they went to the Air Force because it was just uh, it's not the same mission critical life or death situation that um, of how we operate in the infantry. And yeah, it definitely isn't, and I I certainly had that same experience. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think for me, uh, I looked at it this way, or I look at it this way. I experienced all those uh, instances where I was projecting those expectations onto the people around me. Yeah. And yeah, they're wearing the same uniform essentially that I wore a few different, a few small differences, but you're still in the military. Um, I look at it as I was lucky to have a failed transition 
and I still had the safety net of the structure of the Canadian forces under me. I still had the mental health system. I still had, you know, um, all those other things that I was accustomed to, those other parts of the culture I was accustomed to, to kind of catch me, uh, even though I was really struggling with this transition otherwise. So, yeah, I, I looked at it as that, I, I kind of look at that transition to that, uh, to that Air Force trade, and then it became a purple trade, and I went back to the Army, but that didn't really change anything. Um, I look at that as one foot in, one foot out, kind of. You know, it was a chance to dip my toes in and, and get a bit accustomed to transition before I uh, left completely. Um, but it was also the catalyst um, that clued me into the fact that it was time to leave. I think if I had stayed in the infantry, that culture would have masked my struggles for even longer. It would have. Yeah. Um, and so I would have been even worse off. I would have been further down that road when it was time to transition. And again, that fall would have been even further. So I, I, I definitely understand that. Uh, yeah. Some people may see it as worse. I, I feel like it was the, the graduation I needed in order to successfully transition to civilian life. Yeah, because if you have stayed in the infantry, then you don't have that mirror to look in. You don't have that contrast, you know, because everybody else is just like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and that's uh, and that's a big part of transition as well, you know. Um, and I, I certainly felt, you know, I'm not sure that I'll be able to connect with civilians. I won't be able to connect with people who don't have that shared experience. And you know, if all I ever connected with were other veterans who had that same background as me, again. Um, I'm existing in a monoculture where there's nothing to bounce those perceptions and expectations off of to see how they read to the rest of the world. So, you know, by, by segregating myself from civilians, if I were to choose that, it would mean uh, there's no growth, there's no discomfort, there's no growth. So, yeah, I mean, the, that transition to the Air Force, to the imagery technician trade really showed me that, yeah, that, that experience kind of sucked, but so many lessons that came out of it, so much personal growth and self-awareness. Well, so. you and I are both old school as well. Um, I'm a little bit older. <laughs> uh, I went through battle school in 91, and the course I went through, on the Patricia side of things anyway, was the very last traditional course, last one. And then after that, that's when the stress cards started coming out. Oh, yellow <laughs> card, green card, or whatever. I don't, I've never seen them, so I just heard about them. But... Um, Ours was the last one, and it was also the smallest course in the history of the regiment, unless there's been smaller. Uh, we started with 18. We graduated with a five, the smallest wow. graduating course ever. So uh, the rest went into the wood chipper, and <laughs> only five of us made it out. Um, but since then... Well, my Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Since then, there's been some really, really big changes. So from what you've heard from people that you, you keep in touch with, uh, you were a battle school instructor. And how has battle school changed from then to what you've heard about uh, nowadays? Because it's, it's pretty different. Uh, yeah, I would say it, it certainly is. Uh, my, my battle school experience was actually a little bit unique as well. Um, I, I first joined the reserves in 95 and it was 98 that a component transferred to the, to the RCR. And at that time they were running, I, I never went, I never had the St. John experience. I never had the Cornwallis experience. My QL2 or, or BMQ as it's called now was actually run in Meaford and sequentially with my QL3. So I had the same staff from QL2 through QL3, six months at the RCR battle school in, uh, in Meaford. Um, 
so that was quite an experience. And I think we, we started, you know, with 56 and graduated 21. Yeah. Um, now having said that, uh, when I went to teach in 2009, when I returned to Meaford, uh, we were seeing some of the same numbers. We were, we had about a 50% success rate. And I have taught in other places where we had a 98% success rate. Um, so even, even within my teaching career, uh, depending on the institution you were teaching in and the command structure, people had different philosophies about, uh, you know, about the candidates, about the throughput. But certainly, you know, um, in the last few years, what I've heard from people with, you know, the Operation Honor, with uh, a lot of the social changes that are coming, a lot of the directions from the current government. Um, yeah, a lot of the stress that we would have put on candidates, a lot of the, um, what we call it, the attributes training, um, probably isn't there to the, to the degree that it was. Um, certainly not in 98, uh, but, that, and, but also in 2009. Like it's really, really been scaled back from that. Um, Every time somebody talks to me about uh, joining because they want to test themselves, so they want to go in the infantry, when they find out that it's easier now than it was when uh, I went through, that's not a bonus. That's a bummer. Every single time the potential candidate goes, aww, well, what can I do that's hard? You know, I want to test myself. And I think they're going exactly the wrong way by making things easier. Um, embrace the suck. It's all about the challenge. People join uh, the infantry because they want to find out if they can do it or not, if they want to be that one-third that passes, you know, where the, the two-thirds didn't. They want to know if they can do it. And if you're not testing yourself, then there's no prize at the end. Like if it's not brutal and the more brutal it is, the more prize there is at the end, which is, you know, if the Navy SEALs was easy, everybody would do it. And, um, but, but I, it's not true. If it was easy, nobody would do it. Cause it's like, so you're a SEAL. So freaking what? And it's like, Oh, you're a SEAL. All right. You, uh, you went through the fire. That's, that's some tough, tough stuff as battle school used to be. But, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, well, it's, definitely, you know, we, um, you know, when I graduated, there was a huge sense of accomplishment and pride. Yeah. Um, because it was, it was not an easy time. No. Uh, in fact, I remember distinctly remember every Sunday night, you know, laying my head onto my pillow, um, or maybe on my uh, air mattress because I didn't want to sleep on my bed, um, because I didn't want to have to tighten it up in the morning. Um, I remember going to bed on Sunday nights wondering, can I do this for another week? you know, and, and, and really kind of feeling that anxiety and then throwing myself into that challenge, you know, week after week. Um, <clears throat> and I, I would certainly say the students that we put through when I was, you know, during my tenure at the, the battle school in Meaford, you know, they earned it. Um, there was no question the people standing on parade, you know, you folks earned your, your place here. So I, I don't know exactly what, um, exactly what that all is looking like in this culture. I can only imagine some of the, cause a lot of the guys who were there I served with, or I came through battle school with who are, who are there now. And I can only imagine some of the mental gymnastics they have to go through trying to balance um, a lot of these new, you know, social or cultural expectations along with training war fighters. Um, I don't know how the two reconcile. I can only imagine the, the challenges that it must present to them. It's gotta be such a shock to the system. And like when you're actually in a combat zone, 
nothing can actually prepare you for that. You know, it doesn't matter how tough your training is, but what, what, what is the crossover? Like, what do you think is the best way from what you've seen to actually prepare for a combat zone? Like, is there a way? I mean, you you prepare for the skills, you know, but can you actually prepare for being in a war zone? Because those first two weeks, you know, it's like, whoa, this is a lot. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a hell of a shock to the system. I think it takes about a month, really, to sort of settle into it. What do you think? Um, yeah, well, you know, I, I remember, you know, landing in Afghanistan, and for the first week and a half or two weeks, we were just getting indoctrinated and, you know, doing our handover and all that good stuff before we actually left the wire. And I definitely remember feeling like, I don't know that I'm ready for this. I don't, you know, do I feel ready? And then once you're doing it, you just subtly, you know, you just, you cross the line of departure and you go. Uh, And that's kind of always been my experience with things that I found, you know, a little bit daunting or, um, you know, always feeling like, oh, I'm not ready for this. And then you just go do it and go, oh, okay. Yeah. The training does work. Um, I think, I think, you know, my philosophy as an instructor, as a trainer was, you know, you teach with care and test with stress, you know, uh, go through the basics, be very patient in trying to get people up to speed and then you test them with stress. And that's, you know, you, you introduce that stress after the skill's been introduced and, um, really cement it to the point where it's that unconscious competence. And that's what prepares people best for hardship. Um, the testing with stress sometimes, um, you know, I've even, I actually just recently spoke to a, a friend of mine that uh, was a fellow instructor with me. And we kind of said, you know, were there times where we crossed the line and pushed things too far and went too hard? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, there were certainly things we would do differently. But, you know, I definitely saw people, you know, I definitely saw candidates who were really, you could see that they themselves were surprised with what they could accomplish. And again, you know, take the time, teach them well, and then you do hammer them with stress to see that those those lessons are learned and they can apply them under duress. And I think that's really the only, the only preparation you can give for what's going to be complete and utter chaos. Well, I think that beyond the actual skills, the number one lesson from battle school is that you can do a hell of a lot more than you ever thought possible. That's oh, yeah. it. And it's that one lesson. And the harder it is, the more you realize, holy shit, I never thought I could stay awake for five days straight doing hard labor, but I did it, you know, and uh, don't know how, but I did it. Didn't think I could sleep while I was walking, but I did. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah, you become a master of sleeping standing up. Yeah. yeah, And I I think, you know what, that's that. uh, my, My experience with it, you know, going back to those Sunday nights before a week's training started was the curse of expectation was always worse than the actual experience. Um, you know, the, the biggest hurdle was just forcing yourself to begin. And once you were, once things were underway, ah, you're, you're just there, you're just doing it. So it's, um, it's, it's really kind of conditioning yourself, you know, to push your limits, but not, not to be kind of so constrained by what you think are your limits. And I think that's what defeats a lot of people in that they've, they've made up their mind to what their limit is. And as soon as they approach it, they, they're just can't bring themselves to go any further. Let's uh, swing back to the dispatches adventure ride. 
Because uh, we, we, we started, I don't think we even scratched the surface on it. We, oh, I think we got halfway through that first question and uh, we just went, yeah. Yeah, well, that's me. That's my fault. Uh, let's start with the bike you're riding. Is it, are you uh, rocking a KLR? I am indeed, a KLR 650. Oh, man. Uh, do you know Tom Cole? Do you know who that is? Uh, no, I can't say that I do. He's a legendary, Patricia. Uh, he, he's just got out after 35 years in a freaking rifle company, so he walks like he's been riding a bull for a year straight. <laughs> and um, uh, he rocks a KLR. And for those that don't know jack squat about motorcycles, a KLR is a one-cylinder Kawasaki. Uh, just a classic kind of uh, bike that is on-road, off-road, hybrid, enduro kind of thingy. But um, you've gone everywhere with that thing, haven't you? Uh, well, I've, I've covered most of Canada, wherever there's a road or a trail to go, yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, I chose the KLR because I was a dispatch rider long ago and far away, and the KLR 250s were the bikes that we used. Oh, wow. So, I didn't know there yeah. was such a thing. Yeah, so the KLR, yeah, the 95, uh, a modified 95 KLR 250. Those were the dispatch bikes we were using when the program ended in, I want to say, 2002 or 2003. I've always been and a motorcycle so, guy. I would have loved that. I didn't, I didn't even know that that was a thing. So, <laughs> like, uh, as a dispatch rider in the infantry, I thought that was like a World War II and Korea thing. Like, what's the actual function of that? Uh, the function was to run orders and messages between uh, between units or between positions. I mean, so, you know, you got to think, you know, before encrypted communications, you still had to run paper messages and traces and all those things. So that would have been the function of that dispatch rider. Oh, my God, I would have totally stayed in the infantry if they had given me a, a KLR 250. Never would have left. Would have been in heaven. Uh, you'd be in heaven until you ride it a little bit on, uh, you know, I, I, I think I remember uh, talking to uh, a fellow Calgarian uh, about that. He said, you know, he said, you must have had the coolest job in the world. I said, yeah, whenever anybody looked at you, you did. And the second <laughs> they were gone, you were like, oh, man, I'm tired. I'm filthy. I'm cold. Um, I'm wet. You know, um, it's it's great on paper. And once you start actually doing it, uh, the, the shine wears off that penny pretty quick sometimes. Yeah, but all that stuff is you're still on a motorbike. That is great. I'd, well, I mean, I've never even seen one. If you're going to suffer, you can suffer walking or suffer riding. I guess I'd rather suffer riding. <laughs> I got pictures of my uh, granddad on my dad's side on uh, his dispatch bike, kind of a scrambler, whether it was a Harley or an Indian, I don't know. But uh, like, that's a cool deal. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see, uh, no, I never did it operationally. And I mean, by the time, you know, so Bosnia, Africa, there was no call for dispatch riders there. It wasn't a combat mission. And, uh, you know, come to Afghanistan in asymmetrical warfare, a guy riding around on a dirt bike is not a great idea. No. Uh, so, you know, and, and then with encrypted communications, we didn't really need to, you know, the, the function was really just wasn't there anymore like the need wasn't there so yeah it, was, it sucked to see the bikes go but it, it did it did make sense well now you would think uh you'd use drones if you're gonna have a paper message stick it on a drone and uh go from spot to spot yeah well again i, I think uh, the encrypted communications when we got the new radios in you know 2002 around there they really filled that gap where you don't even need to send anything that can kind of be intercepted so 
Yeah, it's <laughs> well. The old seventy-seven sets is what we were humping all over Yugoslavia, and uh, yeah, it's like, well, we have no comms. Put on a longer antenna. Uh, get yeah. up to the top of the hill. That's just not the problem anymore. Yeah, with troubleshooting, you know, if it doesn't if it doesn't work, hold it two meters above the ground and drop it and try again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. So, what? The dispatches adventure ride. We still we we, we keep uh, kind of skipping off the, the the surface of it. What was the point of it when you started it? Um, you know, when I started, the point was uh, one for me to do something positive, um, but just to go out and share what I was experiencing in the hopes that you know it would encourage other people to speak up about what they were going through. And that really came by way of a fellow named Sheldon Roberts, who was a uh, he was a sniper in two RCR. Uh, when I was first got the idea to tour by motorcycle right around that time, I saw an interview Sheldon gave with CBC and he was talking about the struggles he had with PTSD. And, you know, what really struck me was the fact that I had a lot of the same struggles that he was talking about, but I didn't judge him harshly for it. You know, I didn't lose any respect for Sheldon because of what he was, you know, what he was saying he was experiencing. And what were some but of his struggles, Michael? Well, you know, the hypervigilance, like he's always reading people like when he's driving, um, you know, losing his temper. Uh, I know he mentioned having anxiety attacks. That's something I noticed after I released, after I stopped being angry, I started to have a lot of anxiety. Yeah. So, yeah, just kind of those general struggles like that. And, and I really could identify with those. But I also identified that I didn't think less of him for it, but I really came down hard on myself for having those struggles. And that, that's the part that didn't make sense. So I thought, you know what, if I go out and talk about it, one, I'm going to have to face it. Two, maybe somebody else will hear it and say, well, if he can talk about it, then I can talk about it. And, you know, so that's that's how Dispatches started. Um, it's since, you know, morphed into an actual speaking tour that was very, you know, I was riding around, I had a schedule, I told people where I'd be, but there was no deliverables to it. Uh, so over time it has, you know, uh, it's, it's been somewhat refined. It's a little bit more formalized now, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I got started. So for the speaking tour, uh, people just heard about what you're doing and, uh, they, they would invite you or were you calling people and saying, Hey, do you need a speaker? Uh, for the most part, um, yeah, the, in the last year it's been a push. So I've been going to, uh, legions. I've been going to military family resource centers, you know, and saying, Hey, I'm coming through, I'm doing this tour. Would you like to host an event? And then basically, you know, the, the event format, um, I share my story for about 45 minutes or an hour. And then we have about an hour, hour and 15 minutes of question and answer or open forum, just, you know, uh, anything anybody wants to ask or wants to share. So yeah, this year it was very much a push, uh, coming out of that, I'm starting to see a draw. So I've gotten a couple calls from different places asking if I would come speak, you know? Um, so it's, it's coming the other way where people are starting to say, Hey, we'd like you to come speak to our group or, you know, visit our community. Outstanding. <coughs> Pardon me. Yeah. That's all good. Uh, tell me about project enlist. So project enlist is a, uh, it's a brain study into the physical effects of military service on the brain. And basically looking at uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which I butcher that word every time I try and say it. Encephalopathy. Um, Encephalopathy. It's like snuffleupagus. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've always got to, you know, if I don't do my warm-up with that, I always butcher it. Um, (laughs) 
So basically what it's looking at is, you know, um, people look at traumatic brain injury and concussion as, you know, if you were diagnosed with traumatic brain injury, you had a significant uh, blast event uh, or, you know, you've been diagnosed with concussion, then you potentially have a brain injury. Well, what we're looking at is the cumulative effects of military service on the brain, firing the 84 millimeter, firing the, you know, the TAC-50, um, getting your bell rung during Pujo fighting and unarmed combat, you know, all those little knocks on the head over the years and the fact that they create a cumulative brain injury that in, in effect can mimic PTSD. And so that's the, the research side is looking into CTE, uh, trying to find a, a way to diagnose it without autopsy. Cause the only way right now is to definitively diagnose it is through autopsy. So looking at the research side of it and getting, getting to the point where we can diagnose it in the living brain. The other side is awareness of the issue for serving members, for veterans. The fact you may be affected by brain injury, the fact that you may be going through psychosocial treatment when you sh- it should be getting treated for a physical injury to the brain or a combination of both. Um, and also bringing that awareness, uh, you know, to serving members so that there is, you know, reporting, accounting and prevention of the injury. So does Veterans Affairs Canada uh, provide help for TBIs? Um. I do believe they have some resources. Everybody's kind of behind the eight ball with uh, with uh, with brain injury and and treatment and triage and all those things. Uh, Veterans Affairs actually met with uh, Tim Fleiser, the the president of Concussion Legacy Foundation Canada, who is the um, the foundation that Project Enlist falls under. They met on Friday, so Veterans Affairs is actually very much uh, you know beginning to get engaged with um, looking into the problem of brain injury. Uh, how do they deal with it, uh, as well as the forces. The forces is also uh, has been engaging with us, um, started to talk about how we can integrate and, and you know, how we can bring that awareness and, you know, potentially, hopefully avoid these, uh, these injuries in the future or, or know how to triage and treat them. Well, encephalopathy, um, I'd like to learn more about it because I know encephalitis means holes in the brain in layman's terms. Um, there's spongiform encephalitis is the, the chronic wasting di- or the um, mad cow disease is spongiform encephalitis. Um, is also uh, dementia. Um, well, there's five different forms of dementia, but in general, it all boils down to encephalitis. So holes in the brain. And so if I understand correctly, then the repeated concussions and micro concussions just through normal service uh filing firing the carl gustav for those that don't know what that is it's uh it's an 84 millimeter rocket launcher it's a uh shoulder held anti-tank sometimes anti-personnel if you want to be nasty with it um big rocket gun and uh, the boom from this bad boy is so crazy like there's no way to describe it um I liken it unto doing a belly flop off the three meter board. Uh, only it hits your your front, your back, and your top, and your toes all at the same time, and uh, knocks the snot right out of you, quite literally. But and every if you look at how. Oh, sorry. Uh, every time you fire fire one of it, it 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 rings your bell, and it takes a couple of seconds before you can even think of reloading for another round. Yeah, and, and I mean the it's not just firing it. 
uh, being range safety staff while you have a course of 40 or 50 go through and everybody fires two rounds. Uh, you're standing there all day essentially getting you know kicked in the guts or getting your bell rung over and over, and you're actually standing outside of um, that concussive sphere. So you're catching, uh, you know, like your number two and your number one are right in next to the gun. So they're not even catching as much force as the ARSO who's standing a couple feet away is. And you have people standing there for, you know, multiple firing serials. So it was, um, yeah, I mean, the 84 is a huge source of it, but there are so many others. Um, And as I understand it, I mean, smarter people than I, um, I don't examine brains myself. Um, (laughs) But uh, with, uh, with CTE, it's actually a buildup of a protein called tau in the brain. And these, these impacts create the formation of this tau, and that protein essentially kills off the brain cells around it. And that's what creates those dead spots in the brain. And there's a, the tendency to, to be, because of especially back and forth, the, uh, I, as I understand, the tendency is for this tau to build up in the front and the back of the brain, which uh, really kind of diverts a lot of brain function from the logic centers of the brain uh, to the maglia, which is where the flight flight response is. It's where PTSD, you know, that, that part of the brain kind of takes over. So that's why, you know, traumatic brain injury and CTE really seems to mimic PTSD. That's, that's my very layman's understanding of it. Well, this is one of the challenges too, uh, Michael, is that PTSD, TBI, um, mefloquine poisoning, all these different things look like each other. You know, they all look like a duck and walk like a duck, but not all of them are ducks. And um, it's it's really tough. Even AD, ADHD, uh, that's often misdiagnosed because it's a, it, it's actually a trauma response or it's it's symptoms from a TBI, uh, the inability to focus and stay on target. So there's all of these uh, different things that are different modalities of injury, and yet they look the same. The symptoms are nine out of ten the same. At, um, so when it starts getting complex like that, well, is it fifty percent PTSD and fifty percent TBI, or like what's the soup here? Yeah, that, it really <laughs> makes it tough. And certainly, I have my exposure to mefloquine as well. Uh, two missions, so you know, and that's always a question: Is this brain injury? Is this PTSD? Is it mefloquine toxicity? Uh, is it just a combination of all those things, you know, and then, and then you get the, the cultural programming on top of that, you know, 23 years from the time I was 18 to 41, that's those formative years. And then a lot of re you know, cultural reinforcement after that. So yeah, it's, and, and that's, I think one of the challenges, uh, challenges of transition is because you've just been carrying on for so long. And now all of a sudden you've got to go back and pick all these things apart in order to figure out what's what. And how you're going to move forward? That's it's a that's why it's such a big daunting task. It's a lot to untangle. It is. And uh, what have you seen that is promising as far as treatment and diagnosis? Um, you know, I think we've really well. I've seen a huge change from the time that I was diagnosed in 2001. I mean, we didn't even have a mental health system in the Canadian Forces at that time. <laughs> sure um, didn't. You know, so I mean, you're looking at a uh, you're looking at an entity within the forces that's only a couple of decades old. Um, So there's huge gains there. Uh, People are so much more open to having those conversations about mental health, especially post COVID. Um, I think there's been a broader recognition that people are affected by mental health challenges. Um, 
So there's a lot uh, to be encouraged by in terms of people being willing to engage in those conversations. There's still a ton of stigma that needs to be addressed, but it's moving in a good direction. Um, the other thing that's encouraging, I mean, the forces, they are working at it. Uh, they are paying attention to it. There's a huge shift in that. Um, but I think really one of the biggest drivers is this new generation of veterans. We have a lot of veterans who are, you know, 30, 40, early 50s. They have a lot of fight left in them. Um, you know, they've just left the forces and they are now ready to tackle this problem themselves. Uh, so I think the grassroots initiatives are a huge part of driving that social change, uh, driving those treatment changes, you know, um, people learning to advocate for themselves, advocate for each other, you know, starting to hold uh, the forces accountable, veterans affairs accountable, uh, service providers and treatments account and, tr- you know, um, treatment providers accountable. Uh, so I th- all of it's coming together Um yeah, I, I think the fact that we're just more open to having those conversations means a lot of people are going to be able to address their issues earlier and more often, and hopefully to the point before they become chronic. And again, uh, as we said earlier, the, the sooner the better. Early diagnosis and early treatment is huge, just like it is for cancer or anything else. I mean, can you imagine if you break a leg and uh, you don't bother doing anything about it for <laughs> twenty years? You know, you're gonna, you're gonna, it's probably gonna fall off. So the, but if you get on it right away, you're you're right as rain in a few months. You know, um, the earlier you get on it, the better with a, a neurological in- injury, just like anything else. That's one of the bigger things, too, is people um, need to understand that OSIs, operational stress injuries, PTSD, TBI, these are neurological injuries, like legitimately neurological injuries. It's not just a um, new way of uh, talking about something so that you feel better about it. Uh, it it's the actual fact you can put it put us in a brain scan and you can go oh look at that you know this guy's a bag of cats in there <laughs> but um michael brother thank you so much for for joining me today and uh, i think we've covered a lot of ground what's next for you um well um i'm getting ready for next year's tour i'm gonna okay. scale it back to just eastern canada next year okay uh three and a half months on the roads a lot uh, it's a lot to unplug from life and try and plug back in. You know, the first time I did this was a single guy. I'm not single anymore. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, being disconnected for that long was, it's a hard transition back. Um, you know, I'm still working through my transition to civilian life. I just started working for Fanshawe college, um, you know, teaching advocacy and leadership. Uh, I'm also going back to college for business marketing. So those, those two streams are keeping me busy. Um, moving forward with Project Enlist, you know, we're, we're trying to build that community. Uh, we're trying to bring people kind of into the fold. So that's, uh, you know, it's a very busy time, but it's a very exciting time to be on the ground floor of, of the great work that's being done there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, you talked about that bag of cats, you know. With, uh, <laughs> they're, uh, they're in there running around. I'm going in four or five different directions, but... Uh, yeah, really just finding my place in the world, uh, continuing to to reach out to veterans, first responders, uh, to anybody affected by mental health challenges and break down that stigma. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I guess, yeah, that's, that's what I'm at for the next little while. <laughs> 
Well, brother, thank you for your continued service. Uh, and I tell you, it really, really matters. There's the rolling barrage, of course. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever hooked up with the rolling barrage? Uh, yeah, I certainly have. I was actually part of Military Minds for dispatches okay. and rolling barrage. We're, we're both part of Military Minds for a little while. There were, you know, we, we kind of branched off. It wasn't quite a quite the fit that we hoped for at that point. Um, but yeah, I've, I've definitely kept ties with the rolling barrage, Rob True Scott, uh, Scott Casey, you know, so yeah, yeah, definitely plugged in with those guys. There's lots of just tons of veterans out there doing amazing things and just wanting to serve their communities, wanting to serve their fellow veterans and, and continue to serve Canada. It's, it's, it's absolutely inspiring to be, um, to be involved with, with people doing that, you know, and, and folks doing podcasts, doing, doing the work that you're doing, you know, thank you so much for that, you know, giving, giving veterans a platform, uh, to share these important messages. It's, it's huge. You know, it's great to be part of that network. Well, it's telling the stories. And I mean, I've loved our conversation today. It's just so on the nose. And to me, if the more veterans that hear episodes like this one, it lets them connect to it and go, Hey, you know, this sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) And, and when it sounds familiar and you can, can connect to it because we're talking the talk, you know, we're, we're part of that community. It lets them know that they're not alone and that you can do more than just crawl into a bottle to deal with this. You can do more than that. And you don't, you can crawl out of that bottle because that's where most people go. That's right in the, culture you know right right from battle school that's uh rum rations in the field you know uh (laughs) we have um a lot of our culture is all centered around drinking and uh, and drinking games and drinking contests and who can drink the most and drinkity drink 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 (laughs) and um and, and so many legendary super soldiers uh are well known to have detached from society crawled into a bottle and they and they haven't got out but there are other options and those are the people that when they hear conversations like this they're like yeah i can i can do something else you know i i can do something else other than just uh drink myself into oblivion on a regular basis there are other options and um when when they hear conversations like this michael um it just means the world to them because they can connect to it. Uh, you know what, even as a, as a, an advocate and somebody involved in doing this work, hearing these conversations and being part of these conversations is, is a huge boost for me as well. Those social connections, you know, um, feeling like you're connected, like you belong to something bigger. Those are just the things that sustain us. So, um, you know, in, in addition to, I think any sort of substance abuse or reliance, um, it's that withdrawal that comes with it that is probably most damaging. Uh, you know, that, that loss of connection, that loss of, uh, you know, shared experience. Yeah, that's where you start to feel really alone, and that's where the bad things really happen. So, you know, I, I guess that one parting, you know, the parting shot is any chance to connect um, with friends, with family, with civilians, with fellow veterans, any chance to connect, take it. You know, that's, that's what keeps the, keeps the demons away, that, that connection to other people. Well, we'll wrap up by uh, talking about the documentary. I can't believe I didn't even <laughs> mention that in an hour. Uh, so there's a documentary being done on you. I had Patrice uh, on the show, and we had a good chat about it. What's the name of the documentary that's being done about uh, all this great riding you're doing on the KLR? 
<laughs> the uh, the name of the documentary right now is uh, the Messenger documentary. Um, as far as I know, it's still a working title. Um, so I I mean I am a the main kind of the main subject of that documentary, but it is very much Patrice's story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a part of the project, but it's his project. And um, one of the great things about that is, you know, he is a civilian. Um, he doesn't share this background. Uh, and as you, you discussed with him, uh, you know, his experience with PTSD has been coming at it from that filmmaker's point of view. And I know you guys discussed how he got involved with that. And I think that's so important to have somebody outside the community um, share that story. Uh, you know, that fresh perspective on it. I, I think that uh, that documentary is going to be a huge bridge between kind of the, the veteran civilian community, which is something that we, we need to work on. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear kind of parts of my story through Patrice's lens, you know, and through his perceptions. I think that is that next evolution of that story. Um, again, you know, that, that a lot of growth doesn't happen in a monoculture. So having those outside voices get engaged in that conversation, I think, is uh, something that's going to propel us forward for for veterans and for uh, for anybody affected by mental health in general. You know, he really wanted to broaden that out, and I'm just kind of a I'm, I'm a bit of a vector for that story as opposed to being the complete story myself. And I, I think that's that's hugely important. I'm really, I, I'd say, I'm as excited as anyone to see um, the finished product because I have absolutely no idea what it'll look like. Um, and uh, I'm always impressed with how Patrice presents um, this story and other stories, um, you know, how, how he brings them and presents them to people. I think it's uh, it's very special to have that working relationship with somebody. Uh, but it's also a huge step for me to go hands out. Like I have no control over the story at this point. I provide some of the material and, and they're going to decide how to tell it. So it's a, uh, it's a huge leap of faith. It's a huge growth moment for me to be able to, to let go of my own narrative and trust it to somebody else. And that's another huge step in, in transitioning to civilian life, giving well, up a bit of that control. If, if Patrice wants to uh, stitch any of the video from uh, our conversation here today into the documentary, he officially has <laughs> the permission to do so. I, I bless thee uh, with, with permission. Um, please do so, Patrice, if, uh, if you think there's a fit there. But, Michael, brother, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I wish I could have done it in person in Calgary, but the schedules didn't quite line up. <laughs> uh, that's all right. It's all right. But um, if we have an opportunity to do it again, or if you're coming through the Calgary area, just let me know and we will hook up. Well, I'm going to tell you 2024 is the, uh, the, the expectation that I'll be back out there then. All right. Well, I'm hoping to get an invite to the uh, film premiere. <laughs> we will definitely keep you on the distribution list. The little, I'm, I'm excited for it as well. Little VIP badge, you know, backstage passes, <laughs> hanging out with the ballers. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, so now who's projecting expectations? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't little, know if it's going to be all that grand. <laughs> all right, brother. Please stay on the line. All right. Take care. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. 
We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.